You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.33, Hero of the One Year War, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and gosh, what a cheery episode to come back to. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta and sick of politicians. What if we sent them into space? I'm not sure that would solve the problem. It would solve some problems. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 451 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters. On the way to OVA, Greg Y, Jeff K, Luna, John M, Mitchell M, Thomas G, D, Haro Kid, Nick, Driven, and Smiley Arsan. This podcast would not be possible without your support. We also received a ton of packages in the mail, a few of which were probably sent in December and January. But as the intro is already very long this week, we will be thanking you generous gift givers on next week's episode. Remember, listeners, that links to all of the different ways to support us and keep us ad-free are listed together on our website at gundampodcast.com support. We are also pleased to announce the winners of our Season 3 Gundam Haiku Contest. The grand prize winner chosen by our patrons is this untitled poem submitted on Twitter by Sunny FFTL. Not in this moment, but in a place beyond time, we will meet again. For the two runners-up, my pick is titled Souls Weighed Down, submitted on our website by Flamingor Zed. Gravity, the past... How we define home or just that which pulls us down? When it came time to pick my personal favorite haiku, I struggled a lot. So many of your submissions were beautiful, clever, funny, or heartrending. Some of them captured the spirit of the haiku form and others took it in innovative new directions. But in the end, there was one that felt like it had been written by a poet from the universal century. It captured the spirit of a single moment in time and space that could only exist in that world, and yet it still felt familiar to me. This was submitted by F.S. Wachter on Twitter. Sitting by the coast, a capool speeds past us all. Waves crash, engines roar. Finally, our Favored by Random Chance winner is this untitled poem submitted on Twitter by at SuperAaronMan. What if, deep, deep down, we are all Shar Aznable, in flimsy disguise? Thank you to everyone who entered, and congratulations to our winners. We will be reaching out to you this weekend to find out where to send your prizes. So be sure to check your emails and your direct messages. Special thanks to USA Gundam Store at usagundamstore.com for sponsoring the lavish Gunpla prizes that will be going out to all the winners. 
This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 35, Falling Sky, or Ochitekita Sora. This episode originally aired on October 31st, 1986. It was written by Suzuki Yumiko and directed by Yokoyama Hiroyuki. We are very pleased to be joined this week by Sarah McCostumes. They are a fellow Gundam podcaster and are coming on this week to talk mostly about Ireland and its depiction in the Gundam shows that we have watched so far. Sarah is Mobile Suit Breakdown's senior Ireland correspondent. Welcome to the program, Sarah. <laughs> Open Gundam style, everyone. Hello. I'm Sarah. You might know me from Twitter uh, as Sarah McCostumes. I've been yelling at Tom about Belfast for about a year now, and he's finally asked me to come on. Uh, so thank you very much. <laughs> That's true. The genesis of this guest spot was that Sarah posted an excellent thread on Twitter showing the visual similarities between the way Belfast actually looked in the 1970s and the way it's depicted in First Gundam. Then Sarah yelled at me for not talking about that when we talked about Belfast <laughs> on the podcast. I think you shamed me for talking extensively about basically everywhere else the white base went and then not really talking about Belfast, <laughs> even though they spent like three episodes there. <laughs> yeah, I, I've come to fill in the gaps. I also I do not want to encourage anyone to yell at Tom on Twitter. Do not do that. Usually it shouldn't work. Thank you. <laughs> this was a truly exceptional circumstance. Truly. The other thing I probably should mention just at the top is that I have been and am the host of a rival Gundam podcast known as Wow Cool Robot in which we do absolutely zero research and mostly do funny joke such as say Quattro in minion voice and things like that. And we just recorded a three hour long episode on a Gundam movie which shall remain nameless. Uh, that we really didn't like. Uh, so check that out. Search uh, at Wow Cool Podcast on Twitter. It should be the last post in the top of the feed. In addition to your rival Gundam podcasting, you've also made uh, at least one video about the costume design in Gundam, which I thought was great. And I would encourage everybody to go check out. Oh, yeah, I did do that, actually. <laughs> um, the title of the video, I believe, is What Mobile Suit Gundam Can Teach Us About Fashion Theory. And it's a great way video. I'm really, I'm really proud of it. It goes on a one. It's both educational and entertaining, and we will include a link to it in our show notes. Thank you very much. But before we talk to Sarah about this episode, first, the recap for Falling Sky. Bright's attempt to negotiate with the Federation has come to nothing. But they've beaten back Neo Zeon's attacks and are on their way out of Dublin when the Adumla appears in the distance and contacts the Argama. Over the crackling, distorted video connection, Hayato tells Bright, You have to go back to Dublin. We have to save as many people as we can. Neo Zeon are dropping a colony on the city. Snapping in the wind, a Xeon flag flies from the tallest spire of a castle town, perched out at sea. It is Rakan's current base of operations, and it is there that he receives his orders regarding the colony drop. Haman reminds him that their purpose isn't mere destruction, it is terror. It is to demonstrate overwhelming power and annihilate all hope. En route to Dublin, Hayato meets up with the Argama. In the brief calm before the mission begins, Bright takes Hayato to Katz's old room. This part of the Argama is empty, 
its floors buckled, walls dented, and doors jammed. Most of Katz's things have been put into storage, but a single family photo lies on the floor. Hayato realizes he'll need to tell Fra, Kika, and Letz what's happened. Since Camille was there when Katz died, Hayato would like to try to talk to him, but when they call the infirmary, there is no answer. They find out why when they return to the hangar, and find Fa, Judo, and Ino attempting to get Camille into a core fighter so they can take him away from the battle. They all worry what Camille might do, or what might happen to him, if he's in Dublin when the colony falls. And Judo begs that they drop Camille off in Glasgow. At first, Hayato refuses. They can't slow down to drop off one person. But when Judo argues that it ought to be the Federation's job to protect Earthnoids, Hayato stuns the gathered kids by telling them the Federation doesn't care. They welcome anything that decreases the population. Meanwhile, Camille jumps down and runs across the hangar toward the mobile suits, only stopping when Bicha tackles him to the floor. See? Even now, Camille is desperately trying to fight. You were on the white base, you should understand. Hayato walks over to Camille and looking into his eyes, sees cats. All right, they can take the plane I came with. With a cheer, the kids help Fa and Camille to the plane. Putting a hand on Camille's shoulder, Judo tells him to leave the rest to them. Camille looks at Judo and they share a moment of new type communication. Space swirling around them and Pudu reaching out. Ellen Bicha see it too. The Argama bridge crew have begun monitoring the local news for information about the situation on the ground. Initially, the Federation denied the incoming disaster, delaying evacuation of the city. Most people have no idea how much time they have or how far they need to go. The news helicopter is reporting on traffic conditions when it is shot down by one of Rakan's pilots. Not only will a colony fall on Dublin, but Rakan and his forces are doing everything they can to hamper evacuation efforts. They will bomb roads and bridges, they will destroy hospital boats, they will strafe crowds of evacuees on the airport tarmac. Four hours are left until the colony hits. The sky fills with cargo containers, core fighters, and dodais. Looking down at the desperate crowds at the airport, Judo asks no one in particular, can we carry that many? We have to try, El replies, trying to sound hopeful. Fa and Camille arrive safely in Glasgow, and from there buy plane tickets onward, but their flight is delayed. Flights from Dublin are being given priority. In the middle of talking to a ticket agent, Fa is indignant when a group of older men in suits push in front of her. They are Federation officials, and she stands by, horrified to hear them happily discuss how this attack will suppress Ayug and Karaba, ending their resistance and bringing the war to an end, with an added bonus of fewer mouths to feed. When Fa turns back to where she left Camille, he is gone. He left the airport and is running across the tarmac toward Dublin. The sky is falling. All the while, the evacuation of Dublin and the air battle have continued. The mobile suit on the back of Hayato's dorai is shot down, and a Dreisen jumps on. Thinking of cats, Hayato flips up the cover on the plane's self-destruct button. But before he can press it, Judo shouts, No! and shoots down the Dreisen. Why did you stop me? Hayato asks. It's natural to stop someone killing themselves in front of you, Judo retorts. 
There is one hour left until the colony hits the city, and the combined Ayug and Karabo forces make their last pickups. Bright orders his pilots to retreat to avoid being caught in the aftershocks. The Neo-Zeon pilots have also begun to withdraw, but Rakan is determined to kill more evacuees on his way out and sets his sights on the Audumla. Judo, El, and Eno try to form the double Zeta, and Rakan, trying to stop them, attacks Judo. Hayato comes to their defense, firing on the back of Rakan's Zaku-3, but it isn't enough to destroy the enemy mobile suit. Rakan turns and fires on Hayato's Dorai, landing multiple hits. Smoke streaming, controls unresponsive, the Dodai falls toward the sea. Resigned, Hayato murmurs, Cats, I can hear you, just before the Dodai explodes. Camille runs through Glasgow. Judo and his friends form the double Zeta and frantically, furiously shoot down the mobile suits harrying the Audumla. Bright yells at Judo and the rest to get out of there, but Judo refuses to leave until he shoots down Rakan's Zaku-3. We don't want to die, we're out, Bicha and Mondo declare as they fly away from the city. Rakan emerges from underwater, shocked that Judo hasn't fled, but before they can face off, the thick, dark clouds are pierced by the colony. The wind kicks up, grit swirling through the air, after a moment of unnatural silence, everything is drowned in light and sound. Pudu screams silently in her bed in the infirmary, and a wave of destruction washes over the city, knocking back the ships and mobile suits. In Scotland, Camille reaches the shore, falling to his knees as he stares across the water at the horizon where the clouds, undersides lit red, are the only sign of what has happened to Dublin. This week's episode is in the long tradition of Gundam episodes that give away the important part in the title. <laughs> Although, to be fair, the episode really jumps right into it. It's not suspenseful that there may or may not be something big and bad happening. Within a minute of the episode proper beginning, we see the orders for the colony drop and the explanation behind it. So did you know from the title Falling Sky that there was going to be a colony drop? Yeah, that's a long-standing Gundam convention to mm -hmm. refer to colony drops as the sky falling, I think. Beltorchka and Rosamia both describe it that way, if yes. I remember correctly. Uh, and if, if you remember back in Zeta, both the Titans and their Garuda-class atmospheric transport, the Sudori, come from mythological figures whose role was to hold up the sky. So that's hmm. definitely a recurring theme here. Uh, this one also fits into the long tradition of next time on previews giving away who dies. Okay. <laughs> yep. We don't watch the previews as a rule, but if you did watch the preview for this one on last week's episode, it just says, and in this one, Hayato dies. Gotta say I did that and then I didn't want to watch the episode. <laughs> Are you a Hayato stan, Sarah? I mean, he's a thick boy, you know? He might be the only thick boy in Gundam. Well, I guess Rakan is is quite jacked as well. But, but it's very different. Hayato has a thickness that is unique and has now been lost, perhaps forever. I also appreciate the commitment to just making Hayato super short. 
He has always been super short, yeah. and they didn't try to change that when he grew up. He reminds me of in um in Matsumoto Leiji projects. There's always like a super short guy, <laughs> and Hayato is like the the Gundam version of that. I know I've been making fun of him on this podcast, like literally since his introduction, and I feel a little bit bad about it now, but only a little bit. <laughs> I don't know. I think Hayato, while he is in the long tradition of bad dads in Gundam is a pretty good person mm, yeah. as Gundam characters go. Tom is thinking about this. He's not sure he agrees with me. I mean, I do agree with you. I'm just surprised to hear you saying that because the last <laughs> time we talked about this off the podcast, you had pointed out how selfish it was for him to die here, well, leaving behind his two adopted kids and one in utero. Probably born by now. But no, I think Hayato actually, as I thought about it some more and rewatched the episode, the way he is in this episode and the way that he ultimately dies is kind of contrasting selfishness versus selflessness in a war context and how they fundamentally wind up in the same place. Because, you know, judo stops him when he's doing the suicide run. Yeah, yeah. Before he can push the self-destruct button. Yeah, Judo intercedes. Hayato says, why would you stop me? He's like, why wouldn't you stop someone who's trying to kill themselves in front of you? And then Hayato finally dies defending Judo. You know, he shoots Rakan's mobile suit in the back. It's not enough to destroy the mobile suit or kill Rakan. Rakan turns around and shoots down Hayato's plane. In one, Hayato is trying to die. In another, Hayato is putting himself in danger, but dying is not his goal. Hmm. The thing that struck me about that is as he is dying, he says something along the lines of, oh, this plane won't do as I say, which calls back to earlier in the episode whenever he gave his plane to Camille and Fa so that they could go to Glasgow and escape. And, you know, the way he does that is after, I think, a confrontation with Judo, and Judo is like, Hayato, you were one of the white base crew. Like He reminds him what it was like to be on the white base, to be a child soldier. At which point Hayato is like, okay, I'm going to give my plane to Kami and Fa. Mm -hmm. and, and he stays. And by giving his plane to Kami and Fa and by the plane being referenced as he's dying, it kind of feels like that moment of him giving that plane away is him you know, committing to staying and therefore committing to dying. That's really interesting. Yeah, I wanted to draw a link back to the white base as well. And I think you saying that makes that link much stronger because the show presents two competing ideas for why Hayato is so willing to go out and die. Whatever Nina has to say about the differences between selfishness and selflessness ending up in the same place, and I think she's right about that. At the same time, Hayato is willing to die. And right before he presses the self-destruct button, He's thinking, oh, maybe I can hear Katz's voice again. And then when he actually is dying, he says, oh, I can hear Katz's voice. I think I can hear him. Yeah. There's a continuity there. But why is he so willing to die when he has so much to live for? Like, literally, he has more to live for than any other character in Gundam that we have met so far. He has the best wife. He's got kids. He's, like, a marginally better dad than anybody else in the crew. The standards are in the dirt here. He's a leader in Karaba. He has no business throwing his life away. Why is he even piloting a Dodai? He shouldn't be. He's a commanding officer. He should be, like, Bright on the bridge in the chair. And then he hands everything to Bright. He's like, oh, this is your problem now. 
Early in that episode, Hayato says he envies the teens. And envy has been a defining trait for Hayato since the white base. Mm. And I think when they call back to his time on the white base, they're calling back to this. He has always admired and envied those like miserable, self-destructive, tragic superhumans like Amaro or even like Kai, who was somewhere on the spectrum between Hayato and Amaro, closer to the Amaro end. Hayato has always wanted to be the pilot hero in the action, and he's never been suited for it. He should have graduated from child soldier to commander of child soldiers and lived out his life as a Karaba officer, commander, and maybe as a political figure later on, raising his kids and sending them off to war. Well, he did raise his kids and send them off to war, and one didn't come back. He only sent one off. He's still got three. Don't you think a big part of his willingness to die is Bright actually expresses it out loud, but I think both of them feel guilty and feel like they maybe could have or should have done something to save cats. I'm not sure that they could have kept cats out of it. Cats was very oh, determined. 100%. <laughs> Cats's death is Cats's fault. But they were the adults, right? They feel responsible. Well, and Hayato is the one who said, sure, cats can go off into space. Go ahead, Char. Take cats and raise him as your own. His thinking at that time, though, is he's very determined to go. It is unlikely we will be able to stop him. If he's serving under Bright, like I know and trust Bright. Do you think that Hayato encouraging, well, not encouraging, but allowing cats to go into space, do you think Hayato thought that cats would become that, like, cool child soldier he never could be? I. That's a really good question. There's that scene when um, it's after Katz has gone out and gotten the Mark II stuck in San Francisco Bay, <laughs> and Hayato, like, punches him uh, or slaps him, and he, he says, you're not Amaro. You're not the hero. You're a regular person. You need to, like, behave like a regular person or you're going to get yourself killed. So I think Hayato is projecting himself onto Katz in that scenario. Yeah. Maybe there's a hope that Katz could metamorphize and become that hero. But then again, maybe Hayato has always nurtured that hope for himself, too. The other thing that really struck me about Hayato, and also Bright to some degree, that felt really sad to me in this episode... So we talk about, you know, a lot of Judo's plea to Hayato to let Camille go is, hasn't he done enough? Hasn't he suffered enough? But the adults he's talking to have been fighting since they were children. They've been fighting since they were Judo's age. And at what point have they been through enough? And at what point have they suffered enough? And obviously it's different because they're adults now and they're, they're making choices, but... There is something, I think, very sad about that. Judo's perspective is contrasted with Hayato's in this, where Hayato is like, I've been fighting since I was a child soldier. If you're a child and you're a soldier, you keep fighting until you die. And Judo, like, Judo is here to be the younger, the next generation, to be like, um, no. <laughs> Hayato, what the f***? No? And like, again, whenever Hayato is like, oh, I can take these two guys out if I self-destruct. And Judo is like, "It no, don't kill yourself. What are you doing, you old guy? Both those moments are presenting Judo as having like a new way of thinking compared to the old white base crew. Mm -hmm. Judo is like a wrench that gets thrown into the gears of everybody's thought processes. He's always there to say, your assumptions are wrong. There are other ways. 
they highlight the disconnect between the two generations. And part of it is new types versus non-new types, but part of it is just purely generational. Uh, when Camille is leaving, Bright and Hayato say, like, I think Camille was trying to tell us something. And Bright says to Hayato, oh, I'm sure the kids understood. Yeah. We can't understand, but this new generation understands somehow. But what Camille is trying to convey to them is expressed to us, the audience, as like phantom ghost Puru emerging out of Camille's brain space. So maybe the teenagers got it, but I'm not entirely certain that I did. <laughs> That's a whole separate question to me. It's like, why, when Camille is using his mind to reach out to Judo, is Puru there? Why is Puru constantly sort of interposed here? And the one thing that I keep thinking about is that Camille very specifically took care of and protected and guided Puru through that whole fight. And I think he's scared for her. He wants mm. them to protect Puru from a fate like his own, potentially. And that the longer the war goes on, the more suffering people experience, the more tragedy uh, occurs, the more likely it is that she will be destroyed by this. It would make more sense if Puru were dead and this was her new type ghost, because we know that Camille is kind of a vessel for new type ghosts. He's full of dead girl space soup. I think he's also got cats in there and probably a little bit of Sirocco. But he's also obsessed with saving cyber new type girls. It's kind of his thing. Mm. Yeah. Just slight tangent, slight deviation. I think this is the episode in which Camille starts speaking again. Yeah. I want to say he says, like, judo at one point. Yeah, because it's whenever he's spooning space soup into judo, <laughs> like, he says judo's name. Mm -hmm. And he says it again later in the episode when he's at the airport, I think. Yes, he does. And then he also has some very clear, I think it's meant to be internal dialogue when he's running through Glasgow. The sky is falling. Well, but it, it's interesting because it's... At least the way it's translated, it's very much about, we can't let this happen. We can't let these tragedies keep happening. Mm. So there is a this sense of personal responsibility, this sense of action and motivation, rather than sort of like a passive, horrible things are happening to us. Mm -hmm. mm. He's running again. It's not that he can't move on his own. It's that sometimes he refuses to. And so sometimes he's like jumping and running and moving around on his own. And sometimes they're using a cart to move him because he won't walk around or whatever. <laughs> the way it's presented in this episode, it's like his consciousness is floating around in this vast space. And sometimes it drifts into his body, but it doesn't stay there. I buy that. Mm. When he's leaving the Argama and he has that moment of communion with Judo, which I think you described as spooning space soup into Judo's brain, um, <laughs> it's like he's there for a second and he starts to say something and then he just kind of wanders away. I mean, if your consciousness occupied the entirety of space and time. It's not the entirety because they can't go past Mars. We established that. Okay. <laughs> You're gonna write, Nina. Pardon me. A substantial portion of space and all of time. <laughs> uh, There's a really good pun in oh. Judo's, <laughs> Judo's recap of the prior episode. Uh huh. Because he's talking about the episode Camille's voice. 
And he says, we thought it was the voice of God talking to us. But the Japanese word he uses for God is kami. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> ah! Oh, which I think is even better if you consider the more French pronunciation of Camille being kami. Mm -hmm. Like his name is literally kami. <laughs> God. <laughs> we, th we thought it was Camille's voice. That's so good. <sighs> yeah, the other thing that stood out to me about Camille in this episode that I hadn't put together before, in First Gundam, we noticed that there is a, a sort of visual motif associating new types with water. We have multiple times where in Amuro's sort of new type mind space, he's engulfed in water. Other characters who are also new types have this experience. Hmm. It's not usually literal, but they're submerged under rising water, waves, things like that. And then throughout the past few episodes, we have seen Camille seem to gravitate towards water. Uh, he's constantly winding up on the seashore. I'd like to think that's a deliberate callback. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely feels because last episode they find him on the beach like he had been drawn there. Exactly. And he's like covered in sea spray. He's all wet from being on the shore uh, and clearly doesn't care. And then, obviously, for reasons of geography, if he's running toward <laughs> Dublin from Glasgow, he's going to wind up on the shore eventually. But the last shot of him in this episode is him you know, falling to his knees at mm -hmm. the edge of the water. I do want to talk about that last shot and also how it ties into the episode's whole visual thing. But first, I will point out that water is about as close as you can get to space while staying on Earth. And that's something that Puru said back when they were at the Salt Lake. She was like, oh, drifting here, floating here, feels like I'm back in space again. He just wants to go back in the soup. <laughs> Wouldn't you? I live for the soup. Oh my god, I just noticed on my notes that it says Fry still doesn't know Katz is dead. Ooh, yeah. That's so sad. Neither do Kika and Let's. Yep. <laughs> yeah, how much, of, how much of Hayato's willingness to die is that he cannot bear the idea of having to tell the rest of the family that Katz is dead. Because he even mentions it when he looks at the photo. He's like, I've known for a little while, but I bet none of them have heard. I'm going to have to tell them. And then he dies? Yep. yep. <laughs> so now Bright gets to do it. Bright is just getting all the responsibility foisted onto him. Oh, I mean, he deserves it. I would say maybe Amuro will do it, but can you imagine Amuro doing that? God, no. <laughs> he went into space, so he didn't have to. <laughs> I love that they just drop it as a one-liner. Oh, Amuro is in space now. When he resisted the idea so strongly in Zeta. Um, also, I wonder how Beltorchka feels about that <laughs> since she was clearly like super triggered by the idea of him leaving and going into space and maybe never coming back. Well, she was also super triggered by colony drops and the sky falling. So Beltorchka is having a bad time. Good. <laughs> hey. I didn't like her either. Ah, yes. High five. Well, I did. <laughs> I think you're both just misogynists. <laughs> um, where were we? <laughs> I think we were going to talk about visuals. We were. Oh, actually, I did have one last thing to say about Hayato, um, which I don't know might lead on to visuals. Part of the emotional climax of this episode and why it's like so good to me is that the moment of Hayato's death, I noticed, in the episode is the thing that cues in the build-up music for that final colony drop montage. Mm -hmm. 
And it just, it's absolutely incredible to me. And it feels so significant and it feels so complete. Mm-hmm. I loved the way that they cut the music during the early part of the colony drop. So everything goes completely silent. Oh my God. Until the impact hits and then we get sound. And I like what they do visually with Hayato's plane exploding where we see it like framed by a semi-transparent outline of Judo's face. Mm-hmm. I really liked that. I thought the way they depicted Hayato's death was very characteristic of the way this episode is directed. I thought it was really well directed as a complete package and visually specifically, it's very um, restrained. And what I mean by that is it would be very normal in Gundam for us to see a sort of slow shot of Hayato's plane exploding and then inside the cockpit as the electricity crackles all over the place and then bright blinding light and Hayato is slowly disintegrated, leaving only his skeleton for just a second on screen. That would be normal for Gundam, not obligatory, but normal. But throughout this whole episode, from the deaths to the way the colony drop is depicted to the way the evacuation ship being blown up is shown, it's a lot of cutting right before the hit. Mm. We see the lead up, we see the aftermath, we see the light on the horizon, but we don't see the moment itself. Though we've noted previously, Double Zeta is more restrained and spends less time showing us these very brutal deaths than previous Gundam series. But even by that standard, this episode is exceptionally restrained. Yeah, that was one of the things I noted about the colony drop itself. Um, my brain went science mode and I'm like, okay, wait, there must be a calculator online that would tell me about the effects of, say, an asteroid falling to Earth, meteor. Like, what would the radius of that be? Because I feel like with something the size of a colony, just trying to conceive of, like, would the entire city be flattened? How far outside the city would be damaged? Like, what is is the radius affected Mm -hmm. by this? Since the episode ends... Almost right after the impact, we we don't get a big sense of that within the episode itself, though we might in the next one. And I do think that's intentional and is consistent with the way the rest of the episode is done. They cut right before we can see the scale of the destruction. We see the colony falling into Dublin, but then we cut to Camille on the other side of the sea, looking at it from a pretty significant remove, and so it's reduced to this fire on the horizon. Rather than trying to depict the scale of essentially an unimaginably huge disaster, it leaves it to us to fill in all the details. And that, the fact that it's leaving it up to your imagination is, I think, why this episode's so profoundly emotionally affected me. Like, after I finished this episode, I went and had a stiff drink and then I had another one. Um, because I'm sitting there, I'm like, is, is Dublin just gone now? Is, is Dublin, what about, what about Wexford? Is Kildare there still? Like, mm-hmm. what, what's, what about the rest of the, like, what, like, what? It just, like, shows you Dublin being wiped out and you're like, is it just gone? What's there? And, like, you spend the next several inebriated hours of your life wondering. Mm-hmm. And it works really well. At least it worked on me. I also think it's worth remembering that for a Japanese population, that scale of destruction probably like immediately just fills the mind with images of 
you know, Tokyo post-firebombing or Hiroshima and Nagasaki post-nuclear bomb drop. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about how obviously the scale is different, but that the colony drops are meant in some way to be an analog for nuclear bombings. One of the things that struck me about the colony drop and its usage was that it made me think of bombardment of civilian targets in World War II as much or more than it made me think of, say, terrorist attacks, just because of the scale of it mm-hmm. and the, the organization behind it. Well, there's a reason we sometimes call strategic bombing terror bombing, because the goal is the same. The goal is to demonstrate your power to cause massive destruction and terror without the enemy being able to stop you. And with that, I want to put a pin in the word civilian casualties and terror bombings, just just to come back to later. Because the way things that Haman says in this episode about proving her power uh, was very striking to me for reasons that we can come back to later. So that's foreshadowing. On the um, slightly less sad end of some of the visuals from this episode, I don't know if it struck either of you, but... Mondo and Judo are just slightly off model at the beginning of the episode. Yeah, I noticed that. By the end of the episode, they're back on model, but in the beginning, they're totally off and it feels really weird. Like, I remember looking at Judo and being like, who, who is this boy? <laughs> I don't know him. And the other thing that I really loved was, you know, up until now, we've been hearing that the Argama is being decommissioned and we've seen the Argama go through a lot. But we haven't had a great sense, really, for how badly damaged the ship is. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, and that scene where Bright takes Hayato down a part of the ship that they don't even use anymore because it's so badly damaged, and the floors and the walls are buckled and crumpled, and the doors don't work, and it's just unlivable. Whole sections of the ship that are unusable, which may partly explain why they have so little crew. I think that's a chicken and egg situation. If they had more crew, maybe they would repair this part of the ship. But when they've got like 12 people on the whole Argama, what's the point? Yeah, I loved that segment. I have in my notes that they should have done this earlier because it gives so much texture to our understanding of the Argama and Bright's situation. One other neat thing about the animation in this episode is some of the real places that crop up. Rakan gets a classic evil villain type base in this castle in the sea, but we are pretty positive that that is an actual place. Yeah. Uh, it was an abbey and small town called Mont Saint Michel, which uh, <laughs> incidentally Tom and I have been to. It's really cool. Yet again, I've been to Mont Saint Michel. Stop doing this, Condom. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's real accurate. That is a very, very, very close depiction. I don't think there's any question that it's the place. It's got a Neo Zeon flag flying from the highest turret. And and one of the um, shots from further out, you can actually see now there is a paved path that you can take from the shore out to the abbey itself. And it's been bombed out. It's been destroyed. Which I should point out is part of the classic tradition in Gundam of destroying natural wonders of the world, because that bay is a protected UNESCO heritage site and has been since 1979. Hmm. The Xeon flag is particularly interesting because Mont Saint-Michel was also occupied by the Nazis during World War II. However, I'm not positive that Rakan Dagran is in that castle. I think he's aboard the Sudori when it passes overhead. I think the way that they cut those shots together is meant to imply that 
his base is in Mont Saint-Michel. We're just going to have to agree to disagree on this one. I mean, maybe, but like, okay. so <laughs> Tom would rather be proven right. Thank you. I think that people listen to our podcast sometimes to listen to us disagree. <laughs> Look, I concede that the office he is in looks like it's in an old castle, like wood paneling on the walls. It's He's massive big, and dark. Massive, like oak desk. He's got like an ancient looking lamp with a, that looks very organic, like a tree grew a light bulb. Um, <laughs> and yeah, that, that could easily be in that castle. However... It cuts immediately from him reading the letter to walking onto the bridge of the Sudori. The editing implies that he's already on the Sudori. But he also, doesn't he ask one of his underlings, why this ship? Or why did we pick this ship? Or why are we taking this ship? I have no recollection of him asking that. Something about the choice of ship. I mean, it is interesting that they are using an old Titan's ship. But then again, they've grabbed a lot of the uh, Titan's gear over the last couple of weeks. Okay, not to like just come on this podcast to agree with Nina, but I also think that he is literally in Mont Saint-Michel. Why else show like a cool, sick, goth, creepy castle if you're not going to put our cool, sick, goth villain inside it? I'm cutting your connection. I just, I think he's in there. But yeah, and also speaking of real life places, we do show Camille running through Glasgow yet again. Gundam, going to places that I have lived in or been to, uh, I can confirm that is what Glasgow looks like. You know, it's not exactly on point, but they they show this city with high, tall buildings, uh, Victorian tenement apartments, very Glasgow. And again, it's very industrialized. You pan over the city, there's sort of like cranes and factory stuff in the background. It's very grey. I look at it and I say, yep, that's Glasgow. In this episode, the real rats were the Federation uh, admirals we met along the way. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) But we can't ignore likening a group of people to vermin is sort of a classic, like, horrible powers wanting to exterminate people. First, you have to dehumanize the enemy or the target before you can get your people to do the horrible things to them that no one should ever do to any human. But the point that gets made is that Axis looks at these people this way, but so does the Federation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're ostensible leaders. And this othering of the people on Earth is not new for Gundam. The focus on spacenoid, spacenoid rights, spacenoid uh, characters throughout the show so far has allowed us to create an image of people on Earth that is quite different from the way they're actually shown. Think back to First Gundam to when Kai learns that Amuro was born on Earth, that Amuro's mom still lives on Earth. And Kai is like, oh, that traitor. I thought we could be friends, but he's one of the elite. And this notion that like everybody who lives on Earth is either a degenerate rat or a equally degenerate elite Mm. is consistent like across a ton of characters and throughout all of Gundam. But then Double Zeta does its best to complicate that by showing us all of these communities that are not being adequately represented by the Federation, Mm -hmm. uh, that are in conflict with the Federation. Yeah, the people who live in nameless oasis town in the middle of the desert have a lot more in common with the inhabitants of Moon Moon or the kids from Shangri-La than they do with Admiral White feasting at his uh, beach mansion. 
And Admiral White has a lot more in common with Haman than he does with Bright. You know, we get these sort of faceless Federation officials at the airport who shove Fa out of the way. Ooh, their facelessness is so interesting, right? <laughs> well, because it doesn't matter. They're empty suits. They're they're just filling a role in this system. Their individual personality is meaningless. Uh, but parroting this very Malthusian line about, oh, well, at least we'll have fewer mouths to feed, but contrasting that with the gluttonousness and excesses that we've seen among the elites, the leaders, the people in charge of the Earth Federation. Contrasted in this way, we see how ridiculous it is for anybody to be obsessing over the consumption of average people when there are people like these empty suits in charge of everything. Jumping to the head of every line, eating all the best food, eating only real meat. The scene in the airport where they push far out of the way to get airplane tickets to leave very much struck me as rats leaving a sinking ship, which, again, was only kind of put in my mind because both Rakan Dakaran and the Federation officials refer to rats and people as rats. And it feels like the episode is trying to portray them as such. And on a similar note, when Hayato is giving the orders for the evacuation, like rescue as many people as you can, get as far away as you can, we have to do this really quickly, he also says the Federation collaborators absolutely have to be rescued because they have the evidence. Yeah. But that means that like, even for Ayug and Karaba, our ostensible good guys, and if you've listened to the podcast, you know we have very complicated feelings about both those organizations, but... Even they are going to prioritize saving the worst people. Well, no, no, because the reason Hayato gives for saving the Federation people, collaborators, is so that they can give evidence as to the fact that they hid the uh, colony drop. Is that not what happens? No, no, no. That was a perfectly correct reading. But I'm saying that even when their intentions are for the greater good in the long run, the immediate effect of that is that some number of high-ranking Federation collaborators are going to get rescued and some number of innocent people are going to die in their place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's the, the grotesque of any political concerns contrasted with generalized loss of life, right? Like, mm -hmm. when we look at the Federation position on the colony drop, from a political perspective, it's a win-win-win-win-win for them. <laughs> you know, they have lowered the population without... Uh, taking the blame for it. Someone else did this horrible thing, but ah, we get to reap the benefits. It potentially weakens, demoralizes, or even destroys Karaba and Ayug. It justifies their long-held stance on appeasement and gives them additional ammunition against any like anti-appeasement block within their own government. Politically, it's great for them. Can you clarify what you mean by appeasement there? Ah, so uh, previously they've mentioned that Haman has set as a uh, prerequisite for any sort of ceasefire that they give Neozeon side three. Mm -hmm. And when these officials are in the airport fleeing, they're saying, oh, we should have just given her side three from the start. Yeah. Bright's counterposition is it will never stop with side three that anything we give her will just fuel greater like expansion and pursuit of power on Haman's part. Uh, our read on that was that it is meant to parallel uh, the appeasement strategy in the 30s in Europe. 
basically once fascist powers uh, started coming into their own and attacking their neighbors and conquering other territories, the position of a lot of other European powers was to just let them do it or give them what they wanted Mm -hmm. uh, because they did not want to get roped into another war. Yeah, yeah. It makes these Federation officials seem just pathetic in this episode. Also, because we saw so many of the Federation leaders get like blown up two episodes ago. And yet, even though those guys are gone, these guys are still here. There's like there's no end to the the people, the faceless, empty suits. It's a very deep bench. Yeah. It demonstrates that you can't fix these problems by like standing on a table and punching an individual person, Hmm. no matter how good it might feel, because it's not the individual people. They are created by the system. Yeah. And they perpetuate it, but getting rid of them doesn't get rid of the problem. There's a million under-functionaries ready to step up and become the next level of bureaucratic leaders. In the way that killing all the zombies didn't get rid of Zeon. Speaking of Zeon... It struck me very much in this episode how purposefully Rakan is trying to stop anyone from surviving. He's there to block roads out of Dublin to stop people escaping. He's there targeting the airport and stuff like that. They're not just doing a colony drop to show they can drop a colony on a city. They are specifically trying to kill as many people as they can. And there's that scene where he's targeting that hospital ship. You see his crosshairs right over the big red cross on the top. Just a little war crime. I don't think we've been set up to see him as this sort of no rules, do whatever it takes for the mission kind of person. But it didn't feel out of character either. I don't feel like we've gotten to know Rakan really. Yeah. Well, we know him now. (laughs) Rakan really strikes me as standing out from every other double Zeta villain we've gotten so far because he's not funny in any way. He's a real contrast to all the like goofy simps that we've seen so mm-hmm. far. Like yeah. he is completely dead serious, dead set on doing war crimes. Uh, Rakan Dakaran's fundamental character trait is that he is unflinching. Yeah. In that first episode when he appears, they do that like ramming run on the Argama with his warship. That's true, and he doesn't hesitate. No. He's not even a little bit worried about it. And again, in this episode, he doesn't hesitate, not for one moment, about killing all these civilians. And of course, that's probably why Haman picked him for this mission. Can you imagine if she had given Mashima orders to prevent the inhabitants of Dublin from escaping? He would have spent the entire episode like, at war with himself because... Oh, but it's Lady Haman. It's Haman-sama, and I want to do whatever she tells me to do. But also, this is not chivalrous. How could Haman tell me to do this? This must be a fake order from a fake Haman, perhaps a body double. (laughs) Nina, I'm baiting you. You're supposed to say, or clone. (laughs) I'm tired of arguing with you about this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm staying quiet. (laughs) Thank you. You don't want to get in the middle of this. (laughs) I'm buying my ticket at the airport and escaping. Just don't try to fly through Dublin. (laughs) (laughs) That's where I usually fly through. I think it's very important before we finish that I point out that rats are good, actually. Yeah! In this episode, they keep talking about people as rats as though that were a bad thing. When in fact, rats are awesome. 
They're little cuties. Rats are lovely, social, cute animals that play a vital role in the ecosystem. Yeah, and they're great mech pilots, as shown by the movie Ratatouille. <laughs> that is some precision mech piloting. It's rare for Gundam to revisit the same place. When they've traveled around Earth on the White Base or the Argama, they've visited places like Hong Kong, wandering salt lakes in the middle of the desert, the bombed out ruins of Seattle. It's rare for them to go back to a place. They went back to Jaburo, but Jaburo was like the headquarters of the Earth Federation military. It's hard to imagine a more important place on Earth in the Gundam lore than that and ditto Dakar, the capital of the Federation. But they've also gone back to Ireland now. First in First Gundam and again in Double Zeta. Why is Ireland so significant to Gundam? And to help us answer that question, we've invited our senior Ireland correspondent, Sarah McCostumes, to talk a little bit about the role of Ireland in Gundam and what we think it means. Reporting for duty. Speaking of going back to places, we're going to go back to First Gundam. I'm going to take us back to Belfast and go back to the start and how Ireland was introduced to Gundam. And specifically, Northern Ireland was introduced to Gundam. And like, I guess I'll just launch into it. But whenever the words Northern Ireland appeared on screen on my laptop as I'm watching Gundam, I absolutely lost it. The fact that they went to a supply base in Northern Ireland tells me sort of two things. Firstly, that Ireland is still divided in the universal century year 0079, which then the Federation base specifically being in Northern Ireland aligns the Federation with the British government. And it also tells us that obviously Ireland is still divided because there is a Northern Ireland and presents a universal century timeline in which quote unquote the Ireland struggle was lost to Britain mm. and that imperialist hegemony is perpetuated in the north of Ireland or Northern Ireland. That's a very loaded term, which we can get into. <laughs> but it, it's very significant. Again, Ireland is a site of colonial conflict or decolonial conflict and sort of Zeon being aligned with the south of Ireland, uh, the sort of subordinates that Shar has in those episodes are called like Mulligan, Callaghan, Connolly. There's one called Boone, which is not an Irish name, uh, but Mulligan, Callaghan and Connolly are. After we finished recording this episode, I remembered that while Boone may not be an Irish name, that particular Xeon officer also has a given name, and that given name is the very Irish Flanagan. Reached for comment about this revelation, Sarah responded with excitement and a bunch of language that I can't include on the podcast. And it's also sort of implied that one of them, either Callaghan or Conley, both of them are from Zeon, because he mentions them going back there, which it's a tiny detail, but it's just kind of been bothering me because it implies there's like a Irish diaspora up in space. Well, and we know that a bunch of the diaspora in space are people who were forced out. Which, again, like very reminiscent of people being forced out of Ireland by the famine, people being forced out of the likes of the Highlands, the Scottish Highlands, by the British. 
This then connects to this episode where we have such a focus on the question of there being enough food to eat and the Federation officials welcoming anything that will decrease the population of Earth by even one mouth. Mm -hmm. That's presumably why they forced so many people into space in the first place, including, it turns out, a bunch of Irish people. And like you said, that brings to mind the famine and the huge Irish uh, diaspora that resulted from that. Yeah, and like we have the portrayal of Miharu in these episodes and her family and like you we go to her house and they're just like these children gnawing on these like hunks of bread like they've never seen anything better to eat in their life. You know, the introduction of her house which has like a broken window. Like everything in her house is a little bit naff. And you know, she's doing things for money. So she is very much She's aligned with Zion. She is aligned with the Irish underclass. I get huge Catholic vibes from her. You know, she's straight out of Angela's Ashes. I don't know if that's a reference that lands. Sort of. Yeah, so like Angela's Ashes being like a book made into a movie about like a lower class Irish family in the 1930s, 40s. It just sort of shows their like impoverishment. And I I think it's kind of a well-known portrait of Irish poverty. And Miharu's family echoes that and kind of shows all the ways in which the British have ravaged Ireland and left its underclass suffering. And like, you know, you kind of get the feeling that Miharu is then, you know, forced to do espionage to survive and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, It aligns the Irish Catholic underclass with Zeon in 0079. The role of women in the Troubles and... Again, the role of espionage in the Troubles are very well sort of represented and reflected in Miharu. Um, Side note, to me, even the name Miharu sounds like a Japanese pronunciation of the Irish name Mari or Vari, which is spelled M-H-A-R-I. And like, so I sometimes I call her Mari in my head. (laughs) So the way she's presented as this spy, the way she's introduced to Kai as just like a woman selling her wares. And then she's got a gun in that basket. And this is a common thread and a common sort of occurrence. You know, there's stories of the role of women in the Troubles being smuggling and espionage, being, you know, like picking up information, passing it on to their husbands who are in the IRA. And in general, the Troubles, there is a whole thread of espionage. There is like, you know, the way Kai leaves White Base, almost sort of passes on information to Mari, to Miharu. And, you know, there's sort of stories of you know, British agents deserting, British agents joining the IRA, becoming double agents, coming triple agents. There's kind of a whole thread where the Troubles are also kind of a shadow war between British MI5 intelligence and IRA secrecy. So that's definitely a vibe I get from the 0079 first Gundam episodes. One other thing that I thought of in this episode was the indifference of the Federation officials and their their proposed solution to people not having enough to eat being to just like let some people die uh, and how much that echoes a modest proposal, which American high school students, it's like the standard text on satire. Everybody gets to read it, is made to read it. If any of you haven't read it, it's a, a satirical proposal that actually predates the famines by quite a bit, but is saying like, Oh, well, if people in Ireland are burdened by too many children and don't have enough to eat, like they should just eat their children. 
No, actually, it's that they should sell their children to wealthy or middle-class English families that can't get enough meat at reasonable prices. Ah, well. It is, in fact, worse. <laughs> um, I didn't realize we were going to have to put a content warning for cannibalism on this episode. <laughs> But yeah, it's meant to lampoon the widespread coldness and indifference to the plight of the Irish. So many of the proposed solutions to that plight were, in fact, horrible. And really, by extension, the the same indifference towards the suffering of any colonized people. Mm -hmm. I think because there's so much anti-imperialist, decolonial conflict in the world, there is so many places that Britain has had its grasp on and then had its grasp forcibly by violence removed. You know, Gundam goes to places showing decolonial conflict, but like, why is Ireland and Northern Ireland, like, why is it so kind of prominent, especially in First Gundam? And I think it's because of its media presence in the 70s and 80s. And like, this is a quote from the very short introduction to Northern Ireland, a book by Mark Mulholland. It's super short, which is why I was able to read it for this podcast. And in the introduction, it says, because it was English speaking, usually hospitable to journalists, amply provided for by sophisticated agencies of data collection, and also, it seems likely, because it was overwhelmingly white, the conflict in Northern Ireland garnered an intensity of Western observation that more ravaged parts of the world could only dream of. That makes sense. Yeah. And also thinking about all of these different points in time in Irish history being hit upon by the use of Ireland in these episodes of Gundam across series, and that it's not so much that they are necessarily, they being the writing team, thinking about all of these different points in time as just that so many of these problems have persisted for such a long time. Yeah, because, you know, Ireland was Britain's first colony. When you think of Ireland, you think of a place being colonized by imperial powers, by Britain. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, you know, following on from that, when you think of Ireland, you think of freedom fighting against Britain. There is such a romanticization of the Irish freedom struggle. Mm -hmm. And I think by aligning Zeon with that, with, you know, the IRA, you kind of romanticize their struggle and it implies like a nobility to Zeon's cause as misplaced as that romanticization is, as kind of wrong it is to uphold the IRA's many war crimes, or Zeon's many war crimes, you know it, like it gives that feeling to what Zeon is doing, to me anyway. Well, I would point out, I think over the course of his career, Tomino's principal obsession is the ways in which noble struggles or revolutions or uprisings become co-opted the moments at which they are taken over by ambitious people. The story of Zeon is the story of a country, a space nation, with legitimate grievances that are then hijacked by the fascists in the Zabi clan. And we see that replicating itself over and over again throughout First Gundam and then Zeta and then Double Zeta. And not to spoil anything, but it's not going away. Mm. And the constant question, even among our heroes, of what acts are justified in the pursuit of even like a good goal, like a goal that we can acknowledge is morally good or correct, uh, but 
the actions taken towards it are constantly under examination and being renegotiated. And that's something we've talked about with Bright as well. I mean, Bright is positioned on the good side as one of our heroes. Ayug is the side we're supposed to more or less affiliate with. And yet he is constantly put in situations where he's choosing or being forced to do morally questionable things, like firing on or near civilian centers. I want to jump back a little bit, though, to what you were saying about the alignment of Zeon with Ireland and the Federation with uh, the British Empire. Because I'm going to drop a little bit of information about the colony drop from First Gundam, which is barely depicted and never really explained, but is so important to setting up the events of that show. And this information is coming from a source book that was published in the early 1980s, so I'm not breaking our spoilers policy with this. That colony drop was dubbed Operation British. And we're told that the reason they called it Operation British is because decolonization is what led to the end of the British Empire. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they're making that connection really deliberately. Ah, Gundam, a subtle show. It also <laughs> only just occurred to me the, the sort of underlying parallel of an Earth Federation and the idea of, like, ah, oh, the sun never sets on the British Empire, like the British Empire being this Earth-spanning thing. Mm -hmm. There's a conversation that Amaro and Kai have at the start of this episode, um, which is actually the thing that very much aligned the Federation with the British in this episode to me, you know, apart from the, you know, the continued existence of Northern Ireland in 0079. And it's whenever Kai is like, oh yeah, we're we're going to have a break. We're going to Belfast. Yeah. And Amaru is like, hey, bruh, you think you're going to have a break? We're going there to join the army. And it it's really like, hey, welcome to Belfast. It's hyper-militarized. And just everything we see in Belfast is hyper-militarized. You know, we see the the compound gates that Kai leaves to mm -hmm. go into the city. I was just going to mention those because I remembered them from your thread very particularly. And in my thread, I um, compared them to the gates that one would go through um, to go into Belfast, like to go shopping in the center of town. But, you know, that's what police stations look like here, even today, which to me what a normal, quote-unquote, normal police station looks like is exactly the same as a military compound. And like, whenever I travel to, like, England, I look at a police station, I'm like, it's not a police station. Like, three people can take that down with a few pipe bombs. What are you talking about? And, like, everyone I see a police car, I'm like, yeah, that's an armoured wagon. That's what a police car looks like. That's normal. Yeah, the way those gates are portrayed is the way that just military compounds are in Belfast today. And also the way the rest of the city, like we're shown the docks, you know, the whole of this city seems to have been mobilized around repairs to the white base, repairs to Federation army ships. Like all we see are the docks, all we see are corridors, all we see are, you know, the kids being indoctrinated into the military. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me in this episode that they're actually threatened with imprisonment if they don't join the army, which makes me think of the introduction of internment by the British army to, you know, Belfast and Northern Ireland and the situation in the 1970s. Hmm. The Federation military are like, hey kids, if you don't do what we say, we'll throw you in jail. Which I was like, oh, okay, kind of like they just 
did in the 70s with people in Belfast they suspected of being in the IRA. They'd just throw them in jail. So because my brain is extremely broken by having spent the last three odd years thinking about basically nothing except Gundam and its parallels in the real world, everything you're saying about the situation in very real Belfast sure sounds a lot like the situation on uh, Green Oasis and Grips with the Titans at the beginning of Zeta. A militarized, occupied colony entirely built around this like police force that goes around in mobile suits and, you know, heavily armed at all times. Even though there's not a direct Ireland connection, it does feel like there's a, a, a spiritual alignment there. I do actually think that out of the whole um, UC trilogy, Zeta Gundam is the most influenced by the Troubles. I could see that. I would like to hear more. Just the way it is. It's just like that. Again, this is my personal perspective on Zeta Gundam growing up in Belfast in the 90s and 2000s. Just the way that my brain understands Zeta Gundam is like, okay, you, okay, so like they're the IRA, Titans are like the UVF or whatever, the Federation of the British Military, um, the Axis or the Provisional IRA, um, other little things like that. The incident, the slaughter of Colony 30, whatever it was in Zeta. Mm-hmm. Like I looked at that and I was like, okay, so like a bloody Sunday one, right? The, you know, Haman Khan has very Thatcher vibes to me. Blex, um, you know, he goes to Dakar and I'm like, wait, but he's in like, he's like a politician. <laughs> but I thought he was an AU, aren't they terrorists? And then I remembered Jerry Adams and I was like, oh, okay, that's fine. That happens, Blex. It's just Jerry Adams. Um, you can be in parliament and also be in the IRA. It's fine. We are going to need you to stop for a second and explain who Jerry Adams is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Jerry Adams is a... Irish politician, Northern Irish politician, uh, is the leader of Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin being the uh, political party that most pushes for the uh, unification of Ireland. And he is a politician and he was never in the IRA, (laughs) (laughs) if you know what I mean. Yes, I was going to say, historically, Sinn Féin was very closely associated with the IRA, like kind of the same thing as the IRA, right? The, yeah, the... um, the Irish nationalists kind of go along two veins. The struggle towards a united Ireland always comes in two pairs, and that is violence and politics. And they go hand in hand and they dance together. Mm-hmm. And again, like that is the way that Zeta Gundam has this integration of politics and violence is just, it's so troubles to me. It's this multifactional, political, decolonial thing. This goes back to the very beginning of Zeta and also to like 19-teens, 1920s and the uh, Irish War of Independence. But when the Titans are first introduced, and they lose this as the show goes along, but when the Titans are first introduced, you see all these soldiers in like a total patchwork of uniforms. No one is wearing a consistent uniform. Everybody's got different jackets, different pants, different hats. And it struck me that they look a lot like the way you see um, the black and tans or the auxiliaries who were former British soldiers who were then sort of seconded to Ireland as state security forces to try to put down the Irish independence movement and did so with notorious brutality 
many crimes against humanity, many war crimes. But one of the things that is sort of remembered about them is that they didn't have uniforms. They just wore like patchwork mixtures of their old army uniforms. That's why they were called the black and tans, because they didn't have a consistent uniform. Oh, I didn't know that, actually. Maybe you should be our junior Ireland correspondent. (laughs) (laughs) To me, in my mind, the Titans are very much aligned with Northern Irish loyalist or unionist paramilitaries, like Mm -hmm. the UVF, UDA, UFF, um, name any acronym beginning with U, standing for Ulster, standing for unionism, standing for unity with Britain. Because what the Titans are trying to perpetuate amongst other things is their own control over the earth sphere and they're sort of doing that in the name of earth but they're also doing that for their own thing kind of in the way that what ulster unionists want kind of more than to suck up to britain is to preserve their own cultural hegemony over northern ireland and belfast and that you know that feels to me very much like what the titans are doing mm-hmm mm-hmm I agree totally. I mean, the Titans are not just defending, like, Earth. They're defending the primacy, the supremacy of Earthnoids and Earth stuff. Well, and they're not really loyal to the Federation. They, in fact, like, take over the Federation for their own purposes. Which very much reminds me of, you know, like, this month's loyalist violence. Like, the loyalists are antsy because they're mad at Britain, basically. Right, because of the Brexit vote and the new customs rules now at the border. and Yeah, but just like their anger is not directed towards Ireland, towards Catholics. It's at the British government. You know, likewise, the Titans are not, they're not buddy-buddy with the Federation. The other thing that I have, it's kind of a little bit disconnected, but still relevant to conflict in Northern Ireland, is just, you know, the dock um, that Whitebase goes to and the repairs that are being carried out on the ship in Belfast there, because Belfast is known as the place where ships are built. It like It's very much a city formed from industry. It's a city built around producing ships. Um, I don't know if you've heard of a little boat called the Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think they made a movie about that one. As the saying goes, she was all right when she left here. <laughs> Um, (laughs) That's amazing. I have never heard that before. I I assume that's a local Belfast saying. That is a local Belfast saying. Um, (laughs) In the late 19th and early 20th century, the shipbuilding that was happening in Belfast made it one of the most profitable cities in Ireland. But the shipyards actually, like, closed the Final Harlan and Wolf shipyards were closed in like the 1960s, coincidentally, just before the Second Troubles. And then there was also a, a first wave of deindustrialization in the 1920s, coincidentally, before the First Troubles. And like unemployment and lack of industry are connected to rise in sectarian violence. That is interesting considering the level of like industry and how much Belfast is being used as a federation base and for ship repairs in these episodes. It's kind of like the universal century almost just shows us a timeline in which Belfast was not really deindustrialized and that like it's still like profitable to Britain or the Federation. Again, like whenever Miharu comes up to Kai, she's like, oh, check out my local goods. Like it implies that Belfast is still producing stuff like cigarettes and drinks and linen and whatever. 
space linen, polyester. <laughs> Although it also implies that anybody who's not working in shipbuilding is, uh, you know, not doing so hot economically. Yeah. That there's a clear distinction between people like Miharu who are living on the margins versus the people who are actually like integrated into the Federation's whole system. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So yeah, and like I think that that's why the shipyards are depicted in so much detail. I mean, again, it just could be just our oh, Belfast is the shipbuilding city. Let's draw them building ships because that's what they do. Earlier, you mentioned that Haman's speech in this particular episode about why they are doing the colony drop uh, reminded you of something. You told us to put a pin in the concepts of terror bombing and civilian casualties. Uh, yes, I did. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Because in these Double Zeta episodes, part of why I was so affected and upset by the colony drop on Dublin, because I was like, why does it have to be Dublin? Why Dublin specifically? And that's kind of been like niggling at me all day. And I'm sort of wondering, like, what if she'd picked London, from which all British imperialism seems to flow? And I'm like wondering, is this because she's a space noid? She doesn't see any difference between Dublin and London. She's like, eh, whatever, they're all the same thing. It's all Europe, whatever, let's just pick one, let's go. Is it just because the Federation officials had fled there? Is it like a kind of, again, because in the Double Zeta episodes, they first mentioned Dublin as being a city that used to belong to Britain. Um, is it because like Dublin, in having gained its freedom from British hegemony, from having, you know, quote unquote, done the thing that Zeon started the one year war to do, kind of. Um, is it because like after that, they've just become the same as Britain because they've just become another imperialist um, perpetuator? Is this supposed to be like a metaphor of how like Zeon's done the same thing? I mean, which they have and how that they'll ultimately be destroyed. But I don't know, like, I don't think it's quite there. I kind of think that Dublin is just there to be a civilian casualty for this conflict. Um, that is almost chosen because it doesn't have like a, a broader governmental or military significance. Yeah, it could be. I see it as an echo of the way, say, Gardaia was treated, which shows us the hollowness of the Xeon rhetoric. The Xeon talks about decolonization and fighting against the imperialism of the Federation but what they really do is to kill the most vulnerable. In the whole span of the Troubles, like 40 plus year span of violence, the statistics show that the majority of casualties were civilian. There's definitely something to Gundam choosing to return to Ireland just to destroy it or destroy Dublin. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know how the rest of Ireland is. I'm sure we'll find out. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll just leave it to your imagination still. Because when we went to Belfast in First Gundam, the parting shot of that is, I think it says in the caption, the white base leaves the demolished city. Like they went to Belfast, they brought their war to Belfast and they left Belfast and Belfast wasn't there. They came to Dublin, they brought that to Dublin, even though they kind of didn't, it brought itself to Dublin. But when they leave, it's not there. And that just the takeaway that I have from it is that the only byproduct of violent struggle is mass civilian casualty. In Belfast, last year, before all the coronavirus public service announcements went up, last year there was this poster on bus stops and billboards. And it was a picture of a young man, face battered and bleeding. And the slogan of this poster 
the public service announcement that was being put out by the government said the words, paramilitaries don't protect you, they control you. And last year, every time I drove or walked past that poster, all I could think about was the tragedy of Camille Boudin. And like Zeta Gundam and its treatment of youth and children, and Double Zeta as well, it just really shows how ideologically driven organisations their prime recruiting pool is children and teens and young people. And this month, all the violence that is carried out in the name of ideology is done so by teens and children. Like the people who burnt a bus a few streets away from me a few weeks ago were teens and were kids. Troubles were like a 40 year span of conflict. And like what that means is the people who started it aren't going to be the people who end it. If that ain't some Gundam type I don't know what is. The time has come at last for us to say goodbye to Hayato Kobayashi. What's the meaning of this, Hayato? I'll tell you everything when I get there. Just get the Argama back to Dublin. Even now, Camille is desperately trying to fight. Can't you see that? Weren't you on the white base? The white base? Weren't you on the white base? Hayato! Hey, Frabo. Your Amaro's closest neighbor, and it was your responsibility to tell him. He's all alone in there. Well, if military engineers like his dad hadn't moved here in the first place... You're not still bitter, are you? Three, two, one. Operation commencing. All hands go to combat status one. Gun tank has returned with level B damages. The pilot is injured. Hayato! Stay still. I think you fought more than enough already. How are the others doing? They're all fine. They're out there fighting like heroes. It's a real drag. I can't even manage to keep up with Sailor and Kai. Ever since the beginning, when I joined the White Base crew, I've wanted nothing better than to somehow beat out Amuro. But look at me. Amuro's... he's different. He's different from us. Where's Hayato? You can't stay away from Frabo! Oh, good for him. <laughs> I envy them. We just shouldn't waste our lives for this sort of thing. Ignore the small fry. That ship is the target. Don't do anything crazy out there. If I don't slow them down, they'll destroy the Aldumla. I think you've fought more than enough already. This plane won't do what I tell it. Hayato! Hello, I am back uh, because I would like to sing a eulogy for the city of Dublin. 
Now the song I've chosen to sing is The Parting Glass, and the reason for this is because this is the song sang at the end of the night. When the pub is about to close, when everyone's gonna go home, the band will sing this. And I think it's just the perfect thing to close up our relationship with the city of Dublin, which no longer exists. So here, without further ado, is The Parting Glass. Of all the money that e'er I had, I have spent it in good company. And all the harm that e'er I've done, alas, it was to none but me. And all I've done for want of wit, to memory now I can't recall. So fill to me the parting glass. Good night and joy be with you all. And all the comrades that e'er I've had They are sorry for my going away And of all the sweethearts that e'er I've loved They would wish me one more day to stay But since it falls unto my lot that I should rise and you should not. I'll gently rise and softly call. Good night and joy be with you all. Thank you so much for joining us. This was awesome. Thank you for having me. Next time on episode 3.34, The Pillar of Heaven. We cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta, episode 36, and... Now there's a name we haven't heard in a while. As if millions of voices suddenly cried out in terror and were suddenly silenced. The Death of Hope. Something wicked this way comes. Puru-based targeting systems like the end of the world. Pudu 2 wakes up and chooses violence. No end of suffering. Reflections. Black rain. And the most disturbing thing is to truly see yourself. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is New York City Instrumental by Spinning Merkaba. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB Players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, 
GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at Gundam Podcast, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast, or by email at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, It's not that I don't appreciate the Gundam team's fashion sense, but shouldn't they have all gone sleeveless when they joined AUG? Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. And thank you for listening. You know, I haven't really had time to coalesce them into any kind of thesis. I guess you guys can help me with that. That's the process of discussion. We'll That's refine your ideas by telling you that they're not good. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, please, please ignore me. Um, <laughs> Listen, I'll, I'll introduce you to the well-known Belfast expression of "I'll do your Wendy's in me." <laughs> I okay. What? I need you to clarify which parts of that I need to bleep. <laughs> how how much of that is obscene? <laughs> There's only one. God. Right, but I I don't know what the rest of it means. <laughs> okay, so your Wendy's is refers to your eyes. Okay. So that means I will punch you in the face. Ah, okay. <laughs> Gotcha. I'm, I'm gonna be real with you. I have been a bit apprehensive about uh, my ability to communicate without swearing. I mean, that's that's what we bleep for. <laughs> it's true. If we have more bleeps than normal, that is okay. Yeah, it's the, the I'm local just, I'm color. just feeding into stereotypes. Camille just like runs out onto the tarmac, and then he's right. in the like, buddy, excuse me, you gotta take a bus there. He's a very doing? good runner. He's really fast. Wait, I mean, you saw him in the first episode of Zeta. That kid can motor. Oh. <laughs> he never stops running. Okay, I have other notes about 0079 uh, portrayal of Belfast and Gundam, but that, because I want to talk about how, uh, to me, Zeta Gundam is just the troubles in space. I hope we're not losing anything too good on those notes, but I would like to hear more <laughs> Wait, about this. Wait, let me this. go pick them up and check. <laughs> He threw them across the room. <laughs> I didn't actually realize you did weekly episodes until quite recently, until I actually started mm. looking at the current feed, because I was like, oh, I should probably listen to the actual Dublin episodes before I go on. And then I was like, hold on a second, these come out weekly? What? <laughs> How did they... What? When they're leaving the Yaduma, or the White Base? White Base. When he's leaving the white base and he... The Argama? You're right. Yep, 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 yep. The Argama. I wasn't going to mention it. <laughs> please no, you, do. You gotta mention if, that. If we <laughs> make really obvious mistakes, please. Because <laughs> uh, in a couple of days, I'm going to be editing this and be like, what was I thinking? The white base? Tom, you dummy. We have a Hayato podcast. Anyway. I mean, of course, the um, the Audumla is taking the emotional space of the white face in this episode. Um, so, um, yeah, I got nothing. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is going to be a nightmare to edit, probably. 